Our Heavenly Father, just as you prepared a couple, a nation, and a world for the coming of your Son, so may our hearts this morning be prepared and ready to receive him and his word and his spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder if there is a day in your life that you can look back on as being the one day that really stands out, the day above all other days. Maybe uh, the holiday of a lifetime. Maybe the day when you first started your first job. Maybe the day when you got a big promotion, a financial windfall. Uh, won a prize, met an important person. The day that you met your present boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife. Your wedding day. The day of the birth of your first child. Maybe such a day hasn't yet come for you. Perhaps you feel you're still waiting for just such a big, grand day to stand out in your life. Well, for Zechariah, his big day had arrived. Zechariah was a priest, one of many priests in Israel at the time. And uh, for two weeks during the year, he would go in from uh, uh, where he lived, out in the countryside, in the hills, to Jerusalem to fulfill his role as a priest in the temple. Nothing so very unusual at that, because he was one, as I say, of many priests. But on this one particular day, the lot had fallen to Zechariah to not only serve generally around the temple during that week, but on that particular morning to enter the holy place and to burn incense on the altar, that burning of incense that symbolized the rising to heaven of the prayers of God's people. That would have been for him, Zechariah, a priest, the day of his life, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and he would have relished that, uh, the significance of that. Now, as the story unfolds of Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth, and, uh, and that, that, that story unfolds, there are three strands in that unfolding story that I would like to, three themes that I would like to try to spell out uh, with you this morning. And the first theme, the first strand that I find in the developing story of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth is the theme or the strand of ordinary people. Ordinary people are involved in this story that we find in the Bible. Found, in fact, in uh, uh, the portion that uh, Phil read to us uh, a little earlier, Luke chapter 1, and two sections in that quite lengthy chapter. And this is page 1025 and 6 and 7 of the Church Bibles. Luke chapter 1, page 1025. The first theme then from this developing story of Zechariah and his wife is the theme of it's, happens, it's happening to ordinary people. 
These were a, this was a humble couple. Yes, they were of priestly stock, both of them, Zechariah, a priest, uh, Elizabeth, uh, the daughter of a priest, so they were of priestly stock. But they certainly didn't belong to the aristocracy of Jerusalem. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived, as I mentioned, out in the hill country to the north of uh, Jerusalem in, uh, in, in Judea. And they were carrying with them, this husband and this wife, a burden, a longing, an emptiness, a sadness, because they were a childless couple. In verse 25, Elizabeth will refer to her childlessness as a disgrace, and that is what it was in those days in particular. There are childless couples today who will feel the pain and the sorrow of having longed for and perhaps prayed for a child, and a child never arise. But in those days, it was even more than a sadness or a disappointment. It was a disgrace. Uh, Many Jewish teachers of the day would advise a husband to divorce a barren, a childless wife, so he'd find a wife who would bear him children. And so she would have felt the disgrace of her childlessness. And they were now getting on in years, as we read on several occasions, including in verse 7. I, can, uh, I, I suppose we can assume they had given up all hope of ever having children. They were getting on in years. He refers to himself as old. And yet they were a faithful, a godly couple. Not perfect, but upstanding and law-abiding and devout as we read in verse 6. Faithful and not bitter. You know, it's true both in the Bible and in life that God's people quite often carry around for a long time, even for a lifetime, some sadness, some disappointment, some unanswered prayer, just as this couple did. And uh, sometimes God will, in the end, relieve that sadness, as in the end he did for this couple, and sometimes he does not. Sometimes that sadness, that emptiness, lasts for a lifetime. And we need to ask ourselves whether, whether uh, as in the case of Elizabeth and, uh, and Zechariah, that sadness is, left, uh, is, is lifted. Or in the case of perhaps Paul, who prayed three times for uh, something that was very painful to him, a thorn in the flesh to be relieved, and it never was. Whether in either case we would be able to say with Paul that we know that God's grace is sufficient. But certainly while they were having this life of, uh, of barrenness and of sadness, they remained humble and faithful before God and not bitter, still trusting in God's goodness and grace. And another thing to say about their faith, of course, is that God himself had been, heaven had been silent for the last four centuries. They were believing as it were, in the dark, not having a real visitation, a prophecy from God to support their faith. And yet, they remained, as a number of others remained, faithful, believing in the promise. But the main thing I'm I'm wanting to emphasize here this morning, just at the moment, is the fact that it was really a quite ordinary couple. 
And after all, uh, after all, Jesus himself was dismissed by his uh, opponents as too ordinary. We read in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 14 that um, uh, this accusation about Jesus, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his name, uh, isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't his sisters all with us? And they took offense of him. They say, we know who you are. We know who your mother is, your brothers and your sisters. You're just ordinary, just normal. You're nothing special. Jesus himself was dismissed as being too ordinary. And so it is with Christians too. Paul writes in the first chapter of uh, the first uh, letter to the Corinthians, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Not many high flyers, not many of the nobility. It doesn't say not any, but it says not many. God often, God usually works through ordinary people in quiet ways that sometimes cannot even be readily detected. And it was to such ordinary people that something very extraordinary happened. So we move on now to our second theme that I want to uh, pull out of this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. If the first theme is the theme of the fact that they were ordinary people, the second theme is that they had an extraordinary encounter. An extraordinary encounter. As I've mentioned, Zechariah was one of many priests, several thousand of them, in fact, in the country at the time. And he would have been on duty in the temple just two weeks of the year. And his, he was chosen by lot to burn incense in the holy place. Just imagine the throwing of a dice was a key moment in the unfolding of this remarkable and dramatic story. For it's the throwing of the dice that sends him, of all these hundreds of priests that were done around uh, and in the temple at the time, into the holy place as his turn to burn incense on the altar. Now, he's supposed to be in there on his own, but he soon detects another unearthly, unworldly presence. There is another person there, another man, who speaks to him. And Zechariah is filled with alarm because this other person he perceives uh, as what he is, an angel. And you know, um, angels are sometimes thought of as being, you know, these cuddly or rather sparkling creatures that you find on the top of uh, Christmas trees. Uh, But angels, the characteristic of angels in the Bible is that they are fearsome. They cause fear. And so almost always the first thing that an angel will say to a believer is, don't be afraid, because that's the natural reaction. So Zechariah is filled with alarm. Gabriel says, don't be afraid. 
And then he said, Gabriel says to Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Now, is that not curious? What prayer do you think that is? Is it Zechariah's prayer for a child? Well, if so, he would have stopped praying for a child a long time ago. He and his wife, well past the age of childbearing now, we know that. Or was there another prayer? As uh, Zechariah entered the holy place and burned incense that would symbolize the prayers of the people and God's faithful people at this, this time, the Zechariahs and the Elizabeths and the Simeons and the Annas of that nation, would have been praying for the redemption of Israel. Was that the prayer that has now been answered? The prayers for the redemption of Israel. Or maybe it was both, because Gabriel's answer addresses both. Gabriel's answer to, uh, to, uh, to, to Zechariah is, first of all, your wife Elizabeth will bear a child, a son, whose name will be John, but then goes on to say something about the role and the greatness of that son as the forerunner of God's anointed. Zechariah, faced with this angel, this mighty angel, and this wonderful message, has his doubts. Verse 18, how can I be sure of this, he says. I am old. And there's something vaguely comical about this little interaction between Zechariah and Gabriel. Not as comical as the story of Jonah. Jonah is a cartoon figure from beginning to end in its comicality. Just made up a new word. (laughs) But there's something vaguely comical about uh, Zechariah saying to this mighty angel, I'm old, and the angel puts his hands on his hips and says, I am Gabriel. Well, Gabriel is a name known. Gabriel had last, as far as we know, visited this planet six centuries previously, in the days of, 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 of Daniel. And what does Gabriel say further about himself, not only his name, reminding that he's been here before, but also that, he, uh, that, that, that Gabriel stands in the presence of God. Well, if there's one thing that we learn from this encounter between Zechariah and the angel Gabriel is... You don't mess with an angel. Um, Gabriel's response to Zechariah's doubt is, well, okay then. You will not, since you have come out, out with these words of doubt, you will not be able to speak until the day this happens. Zechariah was kind of fishing for a sign. How will I know? And he gets a sign, but not exactly the one he either wanted or expected. Um... And I think there's actually something, you know, we, we may worry about an angel zapping uh, poor Zechariah in that kind of way. I think there's actually something really quite gracious about what happened to Zechariah. He was put into silence for, um, for nine months to think, to reflect, to pray. And when he finally came to the point of obedience, when the baby was born, brought to circumcision, what were they going to call him? Elizabeth 
has no problems of faith, she says, his name is John, just like the angel said. When they turn to the father and says, what, what should his name be? And the father writes down, his name is John. He has found obedience, he has found faith, his doubts are gone, and now he can hear and speak again. Now, with regards to angels, I think we need to avoid the twin and opposite errors of scepticism and credulity. I don't know if you realise, but there's actually quite a high level of belief in angels, both in this country and in other parts of the world, such as the United States. Apparently, both here and over the, uh, uh, over the Atlantic, 70% of people say they believe in angels. Unfortunately, a great deal of that belief has more to do with New Age thinking than with biblical uh, teaching. Uh, This idea that uh, if you see um, a white feather drop from the air, that's an angel, and all that kind of silliness. So we ought not to be credulous about uh, belief in angels, but also we ought not to be sceptical either. Um, I, I do not believe especially having looked at the first four verses of Luke's Gospel and the way he researched so carefully the history of all that's going on here, I do not believe this is simply myth or legend. Uh, I do not think we can afford, as biblical Christians, to be cynical or sceptical about the reality of angels. Just one uh, example from uh, post-biblical times, uh, just to illustrate the reality of angels for a moment. John G. Payton was a missionary in the New Hebrides. One uh, night, uh, his, uh, the house in which he and his wife uh, were, um, uh, were living was surrounded by an aggressive uh, tribe of islanders who were intent on setting the house on fire and killing Payton and his wife. Peyton and his wife prayed all night for God to deliver them safely. And in the morning, they looked out and they found that the, um, the angry uh, tribe uh, had departed, and that they were safe. A year later, the head of that tribe was converted to Jesus Christ. And so Peyton asked him about that night when they had sought to attack uh, Peyton and his wife. And uh, Peyton said to the, to the uh, head of the tribe, uh, why didn't you kill us when you set out to do so? And the head, said, uh, the head man said, well, um, because of all those people who were outside, ringed uh, your house, those big men wearing armour, and uh, each with a sword in their hands, we couldn't possibly attack you. You were too heavily defended. And at the time... At that moment, Peyton realised that they had, on that occasion, been protected by a company of angels. They had, Zechariah uh, in particular, had an extraordinary encounter as God sent his angel, his messenger, there. Ordinary people sometimes do have extraordinary encounters. But now this brings me on to the third theme or strand in this story. Ordinary people, an extraordinary encounter, but now thirdly, an ancient story. An ancient story. God is about 
to do a new thing through this child, or signaled by this child, um, that Elizabeth would bear. But this new thing is deeply rooted in the past. Think of some of the ways in which the story recorded in this chapter is rooted in in the Old Testament story. Zechariah is fulfilling an Old Testament role. He's a priest. His wife is the daughter of a priest. They're descendants of Aaron. Elizabeth's very barrenness reminds us that God sometimes had something very special in mind for just such barren women. Do you remember Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mother, Hannah, Samuel's mother? All women who were barren beyond the the years of childbirth. She would have known, she might have uh, expected, even from her very barrenness, that God might have something special for her in the end. The whole story is centered on the temple. And it's the time of burning of incense. There's so many things going on here which are rooted in Old Testament faith. And these two were godly people in that Old Testament. Testament sense, like Simeon and Anna, they would have been looking and praying for, beautiful words these, the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem, words applied to Simeon and Anna in chapter 2. And then there's the description of John the Baptist in verse 17. Will you have a look at that with me? Uh, Here's the prediction of who John the Baptist will be. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make uh, make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, these are words lifted almost word for word from the very last verses of the last book of of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Again, showing just how rooted all of this is in the Old Testament story. So we aren't surprised when Paul writes to the Galatians, chapter 4 and verse 4, that he fits the story of Jesus into this longer story of God's dealings with humankind by saying that Jesus came when the time had fully come. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. There is the opening up here of a new chapter in God's story. But the old part of the story is still important. The Old Testament story is still important for us. The Old Testament scriptures were the only Bible that Jesus knew. And we... uh, We will limp to heaven if we only go to heaven understanding and believing and reading the New Testament. You can't understand the New Testament without understanding something of the old. So here we have a segment in a story that had been unfolding for many centuries, an ancient story. There are then the three strands I want to pick out from the story. Ordinary people, an extraordinary uh, encounter, and an ancient story. And now I move towards a conclusion. We find 
celebration happening in verse 58 and following as the um, village people gather round at the time of the birth and the time of the circumcision and they rejoice with, with Elizabeth uh, that her barrenness has been rele- received and she has this longed for son that she had longed for and prayed for for so many years. And there's also closure, as we've noticed, for Zechariah, as in obedience to the angel's word and agreement with his wife. He names the baby John. That John, of course, who would become John the Baptist. What this couple wanted was a child. But in answering their prayer, God not only gave them their longed-for child, but gave the nation a great prophet and gave the world hope. Truly, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we or they could ever ask or think. But Luke will not let us think of John without also getting us to think about the one to whom the story points and the one to whom John would point. The whole announcement of John's birth is intertwined with and interrupted by the announcement of Jesus' birth. There are many points of similarity between the birth of John and the birth of Jesus, not least the close relationship between the two mothers, Elizabeth and Mary. But the contrast between the birth of John and the birth of Jesus is even more important and even more inescapable. For John would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Jesus would be the Messiah. John would be great in the eyes of the Lord, chapter 1 and verse 15. Jesus would be the Lord. Just glance uh, for a moment, just ahead to chapter 2 and verse 11. More of a message from the angel. The angel now is speaking to the shepherds saying, amongst other things, in chapter 2 and verse 11, he, the baby in the manger, is Christ, footnote, the Messiah, Christ the Lord. John, the forerunner, great in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus, the Messiah, who is the Lord. So the coming of John opens a new and climactic chapter in the unfolding drama of God's redemption. There is a story, there's a place in this story for very ordinary people like Zechariah and Elizabeth. There's a place in this great story for you and for me too. God's story is continuing to move forward. At the season of Advent, we are reminded that the story is hastening towards a conclusion. When the same Jesus who came as a baby in the manger and was led as a lamb to the slaughter will come in glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. Luke, Zechariah, Elizabeth and John all point to Jesus. Will we step into this story ourselves and become followers of Jesus or continue to be followers of Jesus and continue to point to him, his miraculous conception, his joyous birth, his sinless life, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection, his triumphant ascension, his continuing rule by his spirit, and his promised return. May God grant that we all receive and then point to Jesus this Advent 
and this Christmas. Amen.